It's obvious that design is all around us, but how designers think through their work is often a mystery. Yet, understanding that process can fuel our own curiosity and creativity. Adam Fromey hosts Thinking Through Design as a series of in-depth discussions to reveal the designer's mindset and realize its value. I'm excited that I have both of you in the same room. I think a good place to start is with the book that you two co-authored, Convivial Toolbox. Could you first share maybe just a, a short statement as to how that came about and what, what was the need that that book was satisfying? Oh, let me speak about the need. Um, <clears throat> because Liz came with the, uh, with the solutions and I came with the need. Uh, we both uh, do field research, interested in supporting people, learning from people about them, uh, and engaging them in design. But the need for me was that I was giving a new course on this um, in our master's programs, and I had to deal with 200 students. And that means you have to do things very structured, and uh, you have to both convey the the feel of the work because co-design is it's sensitive, a very sensitive uh, activity, and yet it must scale up for me. And so I had the need to create a course book, a course book with methods and practical use and theoretical basis. And Liz had content. <laughs> yeah, I didn't... I wasn't on the faculty full-time at the time. I think we started writing it in 2006, so I was a design research consultant. But I was teaching the design research students here at Ohio State. So it wasn't as big of a need for me, but I could see that it would really be useful were we to have this kind of a book. But um, So we were both working on it. We were both doing our full-time jobs and then just doing this as a side gig. Yeah. And and this idea, both of you mentioned design research. How would you communicate that, or how do you explain that to people that aren't familiar with that term? Well, I'll say sometimes I will compare it to market research, where market research is the research you would do to um, figure out how to sell something to people, how to advertise it, how to promote it. Um, and so you're trying to talk people into whatever it is, the product or the service. In um, design research, what we're doing is we're upstream to that, and our aim is to figure out what do people really need? What would make their lives better? And so we start from the, the needs and the dreams of people um, trying to use design to improve their lives in contrast to selling them something that is cool but maybe they don't really need. And I think that, that connects to, let's say, the underlying stream. If sh We should use one slogan. It is, the user is the expert of his experience. That's the way I, I sold it in our own uh, department that has a long history. We're long, a lot of people. Research is not a strange thing there, but much of the research was human factors research. How tall is someone? Very valuable. Um, and... People were doing usability testing, so once the designers had their bright ideas and made a prototype, it could be tested before 
the final thing was made. Um, but the idea of engaging with users very early in the design process, that was new at the time. And the way to do it was not very comfortable <laughs> for everybody. Uh, so that was the interesting promise. And I, in the initial time when I had to sell it in my, uh, in my department, I said, let's think of the victims of our mistakes and try to discover those real needs before we have our great ideas. Because if you have your great ideas without being immersed into uh, the people who really need it, well, they might be great, but not appropriate. But uh, see, the people might be the ones having the great ideas as well. Is that what made it uncomfortable, just sort of the newness of it, of, of trying to sort of connect these dots between and, and uncover what people needed or, or what people were wanting? Yeah, I think the newness um, is there. I think design was going through a change of, of opening up. Um, we, it had become a serving discipline, especially industrial design, that we were aware that we had to make stuff that is good for people um, and not necessarily the, the, the great god designer who has terribly bright, bright ideas and will put artworks and then everybody has to sell it that, was, that went before. Uh, so but it was a serving discipline, but the idea that um, people have a creative contribution to make rather than just a, an evaluative one that you give them something and they'll tell you whether they like it or not, which is quite superficial if you have to do that quickly. And I think uh, there's going to phrase there that everybody is creative. And if you th think that through, that has implications about uh, the contributions that everybody can make. And it's easy to say everybody is creative, so we just um, ask people what they want. And, but that is silly. Because if you ask people what they want and you don't prepare them, you, the answer is more of the same. Was the shift to, from like sort of product design or the thing to service design more of a natural evolution or was it more sudden in sort of the term of the timeline of design? Because um, I'm, I'm curious about sort of, you're talking about sort of the feedback, right? That um, has for a long time been a part of design. And, and did this sort of awareness come out of just getting better feedback of like, oh, well, if I had known this sooner, we, we could have maybe done something different? Yeah, um, but um, that has come about. But you said uh, the service design uh, thing. I think there have been a few steps, at least in the way I experience design, there have been a few steps which made it easier to go to service design and to design of intangibles and design of policies and being involved in all those processes. Uh, I think in the product design in the 90s, it, we got interface design, which already narrowed down because you had this rectangular screen with pixels and you could do marvels on it, but you had very little guidance of 
what you could do. So that was an effort which moved people away from, oh yeah, mass manufacturing has to be made of plastics and all those manufacturing issues. And then we got experience design and techniques from theory and the emotional response of people became important, became part to pay attention to those things. And then we got interaction design. And then the, the initiative for action of people and reaction and feedback loops got in the attention. And then service design came, which um, brought a few things. One of the things that it brought uh, was that it had much more attention to the interaction over time. Interaction design t typically focuses on the moments when you are touching the product. And service design has to deal with, well, if you're booking a flight, well, there is an anticipation before the journey, before the buying. There's a feeling that you have during and after. And that was, again, um, new dimensions of attention for designers and needed new tools and needed new considerations. And especially if you draw these things over time and in a richer understanding of the context, yeah, then you have to deal with more depth with people. That's more than the immediate response of, here, I show you something, do you like it or not? Yeah, so it's more, in addition to maybe sort of filtering upstream from feedback, it really was just sort of a, a new type of solution that people were experiencing that, that prompted this need for additional information from them. But, about, but I want to I add to yeah. that because I have the view from industry during that evolution. And um, I think industry has always been uh, further ahead than academia in terms of addressing change, but we don't always communicate it or disseminate it because it's proprietary. And so even back in the 90s, we were for the big clients with large budgets and strategic thinking we were already doing like experience design, user interaction design, um, and service design. But we didn't necessarily have those words. Um, but if you look back at how we were doing the work, but this did not relate to sort of smaller, you know, more companies that were just looking for the next new thing. This was very large strategic, um, sort of future looking projects. So it was, it was hap so it's been a long time in my opinion for it to emerge and um, be something that we're teaching the students. Um, but it's a long time coming. Yeah. Yeah. It just was happening sort of hidden, and now it's been more brought, right. brought out into the light as to... We couldn't talk about it. Yeah. Right. To, to that, with teaching students the, the, this, how, how to engage in this, because it seems very open-ended. It seems very sort of discovery-based, which, which um, I can see how that would feel very overwhelming for a student to tackle. How do you bring this into the classroom and introduce this to students that are unfamiliar with this type of work? Um, well, the way we do it is uh, we take them through a trajectory. In the course that I teach, they get to experience a generative session as a participant. So as a user, you might say, uh, but not as a designer, 
as a person who has experience of life on a certain topic. And after experiencing that, I tell them, now you're going to shift into a researcher role and try to um, analyze, dissect, make sense of some of the things that were said in such a session. And after that said, now you're going to into a communicator role and you're going to take those insights and deliver them to a design team. And it's not going to be you, it's someone else uh, who needs to act upon these insights. And then the final step is, and now you're going to be that design team. Uh, so it's a bit artificial by pulling things apart, but it um, brings the students first in, in the experience of how in these sessions um, people come up with personal stories. If people are together, they resonate with each other's stories. People are able to uh, articulate uh, their experiences. Uh, people are able to pursue and discover the values behind that if you, if you guide the process well. So once that penny has dropped, then we start moving to analysis and, and design. But experience comes first. Liz, you're talking about this sort of having an origins in industry. How mm -hmm. the first people that were probably working on this, the designers at least on the team, hadn't been taught this. They so weren't what, necessarily designers. Yeah. We were in a design firm. So but the ones were who they? were doing it, well, <laughs> um, systems engineers, lawyers, designers, um, people from different backgrounds were the ones doing this in industry early, in, in my experience. So it was already like a transdisciplinary team um, on the big projects, getting the opportunity to explore. And what value did that transdisciplinary aspect of it provide in that sort of early setting before we have the sort of the publishing of a book and all, all of the sort of descriptions of methods and? Um, I think together we just had the confidence to make stuff up and execute it. Um, but it, it took sp specific clients who were open to that exploration. And typically they would be clients who would be doing it with us. So we weren't necessarily working for them, um, but they were a part of the collaborative team. So they were in the room? Yeah, or over the phone, or this was a long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> they were involved. They would come yeah. visit. Actively involved versus just sort of yeah. waiting for the report to come. Yeah, so that, that is, I hadn't thought about that, that the team doing that work did not just come out of design, but we were all in a design firm. The design firm tended to hire people not from design, so I was hired as an experiment in the firm. That D seemed to work out well. Yeah. <laughs> but no, that's really interesting as mm -hmm. far as uh, the, the positioning of that, of, of pulling together a, a sort of team of, um, for lack of a better word, misfits, or, or from yeah. these different places that seemingly wouldn't be the people that you would hand select for, for that role. That's right. And the the PI of the project, we didn't call him a project manager, was, um, had a PhD in systems engineering. So the whole systems aspect of it was, was there from the start. That provided the structure maybe? For or the, 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 the perspective, okay. how broadly we were um, encouraged to think. 
And, and so as you being a part of this team early on, did you have a sense for where this was going as sort of a now field of, of work within the design industry? Not at the time, no. 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 When did that start to shift or, or sort of that like as you're sort of seeing the outcomes of the types of projects you're working on? or mm-hmm. I keep thinking, boy, it's taken a long time. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's taken forever to change. That's, yeah. And, and so the effort, a lot of this effort was to be able to lay it out in a way so that way it could be maybe executed a little more efficiently or? Well, I guess it was more um, anticipating the future mm. in many ways. So the whole kind of futures aspect that we're seeing emerge now, um, that's what we were doing way back when. Mm-hmm. From, from multiple perspectives. And similarly in the classroom, is that something you also sort of strive to get people from this broad transdisciplinary range of backgrounds that you're bringing, that you see the interest in for, for the? Yes, now. Okay. <laughs> At the time, this was mass scale education for two master programs. And these were master students, and as we started, we had just started the international program with master students. So before that, almost all the master students did their own bachelor. So they are not so very different. Um, And they were all designers? And they were all designers. Mm -hmm. But there were a few advantages. Uh, Liz was a few decades ahead of us with all kinds of experiences. She shared those with us. Um, I remember putting uh, a graduation student on it, try it out and structure it and connect it to our own education. That was Frau Kiesleswijk-Visser. And then uh, it took off amazingly well, also because we were just making new programs. And that's a time where you can experiment when people are open. And then we had uh, students who were... uh, given the theory and a little bit of practice uh, in the introductory course. And then they had to do a half-year graduation project for an industry. Mm. Afterwards, they go on the market. So actually, we had a testing ground because we didn't have to motivate the industries for this because this is design method. And the two things, uh, when you graduate with an industrial client, Uh, They're interested, actually, in learning what new methods come out of the university. And they are very interested in talent for hiring them. So uh, quite a number of the students took up these methods. And then we worked intensively with them to to better be able to structure and uh, get experience with those methods. And also, they then went into industry. And so we put 200... (laughs) experienced people in the field Uh, and apart from some of the big industries that we worked with it's also the the smaller and the design agencies got interested so that was put things into movement quite quickly and um, it was so insightful that we had several um, graduates who then did PhD studies on it each time focusing on an element. So that's uh, a quick way to build um, an articulated body of theory. 
Yeah, I keep going back to this idea of just the expectation of experimentation for students. Um, the students I have in class are, are so wired for the rubric and being able to understand what the deliverable is at the beginning and want to, wanting to just sort of go after that. And, and they're very sort of laser focused on that and getting them to change that mindset away from the outcome being the final thing. Because mm -hmm. in this work, the outcome isn't the final thing, right? It's something different. Because And so could you expand on that or, or could you? I think on the one hand, the focus on rubrics has come with the rubrics. And designers have for a very long time been taught that the first thing you do is question the brief. Um, so the, the wonderful thing of design, if you compare it to, let's say, more structured uh, sciences, is that uh, you have an idea of a goal at the beginning. Um, you do not have an idea of the solution at the beginning. Well, sometimes there are jobs where you have to create something which is pre-specified. But if I'm talking now, what designers are really good at is well, discovering the needs, discovering criteria, um, creating and generating ideas, uh, facilitating these types of processes with other people is equally important these days. Um, and that's, that's where I think the magic of design lies. And on the one hand, that's difficult for clients. It was always difficult, difficult for clients because the clients wanted certainty and they certainly wanted a specified result that would put their mind at ease. Um, then suddenly it also helps a little bit if you have a method that you can explain that, oh yeah, we make these four steps. These days it's the double diamond. Everybody says we make the four steps of the double diamond. You never do actually, but it's a good story to tell and puts people at ease. Yeah. Liz, did you experience that? Um, this sort of conflict that clients might have between sort of the goal versus the solution? Um, not as much because I, in, in my practice, I was working with the clients who were coming for something different. Okay. That they, I wouldn't be oh, they necessarily... They were predisposed to... They were predisposed to, um, yeah, working in the front end and coming because they wanted to try something different, say, from market research. So I haven't had um, that kind of experience in in industry, um, but at the graduate level, in all of my courses, I invite any student, any graduate student from the university. And so we tend to get students from engineering, um, MBA students, um, other disciplines. Um, but it's, it's really clear, particularly the engineering and the MBA students are really uncomfortable at the beginning of the semester, like really uncomfortable with the approach and all of that. And the MBA students, you know, feel like, well, they should just take over and run the whole thing. And by the end of the semester, they are in awe of the design students because they know how to do stuff, make stuff, and get things done. So, in, you know, at the student, graduate student level, those barriers are, they come with that baggage. But most, when they come to my class, it's an elective for them. Mm -hmm. Nobody's making them come. 
Yeah, so, so again, even there's, there's a little self-selection with them. Right. They, they might have been they might have been told by their advisor this would be good for you, mm-hmm. or they'll come and say, oh, yeah, I'm the black sheep of my engineering class. That's why I'm here. Um, but they, they come on their own will, and they're still incredibly uncomfortable, um, but they stay with it, and it turns out um, wonderful in the end. Do you think it's more the... In the beginning, the making that's uncomfortable or the... The ambiguity. Just the ambiguity in general. The ambiguity, the lack of structure, the do-whatever-you-want kind of attitude. Which I think does go back to what you are saying earlier as far as this idea of repetition, right? First as a participant, Mm -hmm. then as a researcher, then as a communicator, then as a designer. (laughs) to build up those layers of, of just sort of the experience because that's where the process lies. The process and, and, and that you can understand that there are these different uh, perspectives. And because if you can recognize the perspectives, if you can switch the, between the perspectives, that's absolutely necessary if you need to communicate with others or work together with others who are in that other role. So if you have never been in that user role, it, you shouldn't talk to users. You should discover your own being a user uh, and, and make that part of, of the interaction. And it's also the same thing. Uh, we find that if you do this, this type of design research and discover uh, insights about users, when you hand this over to a design team, you shouldn't give them your insights. You should give them your insights plus a number of solution directions that come out of that. Because there is a huge gap of worlds between research and analysis and insight generation and operating in the solution space where the design team will then be. And if you just then hear the findings, go ahead and be creative, that's a very difficult move for them to make. So at these boundaries, you need to work together. Providing the sort of prompts, whether it's visuals or just sort of directions for yeah, them, or, to, or, threads for or them to even explore. A silly, a silly design solution that is clearly expresses uh, what your insights were. And now some people don't dare to do that because they justly know that they don't know everything about the possibilities of the client, manufacturing options, price, uh, target size, segment, and says, oh, no, no, we leave the design to the others, but it's stepping into the design language. Mm. And that you can do with a partial suggested thing because that that's the way your audience will be able to understand you if your audience is a design team. So in, in that... Um, description is the report more of a, a communication of what the goals are and then those sort of ideas are, are representative of what the solution could be to sort of use that same language. You, you try to bridge that gap um, but I wouldn't want to emphasize the report. Mm. The report is typically um, that you're accountable for what you did and that for those people who want to look at it with a either a budgeting or a, a research look say oh 
That's why we can trust that. But it doesn't convey the content stream of ideas that needs to go on in the in the next step. And for that, it's 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 very rare these days. I think all all students have understood that you don't just toss a report on the table and then you're done. You do a workshop with the design team and, and you either create design directions or design tools. And not that those tools will necessarily be used, but they will be read. The report serves a different audience, yeah. out, sort of outside the immediate process or project that's being worked on. But I, I want to add something yeah. to the report, because with COVID, we all were forced to work with Zoom and Miro. And so I used to have the, um, the student teams turn in reports of their main project. Um, but now what we do is they can turn their Miro board in. So the rule is put everything on the Miro board. And before you turn it in, you have to, you have to clean it up, organize it, chunk it, provide navigation as well as a flow through. So in that way, as an instructor, I can see everything they did. Um, but they're also telling me, hey, here's, here's the main path. So that would, would have been the report. Um, but I have access then to, to all of it. So that's been one of the advantages of yeah, we, being remote. We use that in a College of Nursing. The graduate course I teach there is all online. So students are from all across the country. Yeah. Um, we use the Miro board for the team sort of work table. So yep. we encourage it to be a little more messy than what you're describing, but it documents everything. Right. All elements of the process are captured right. somewhere on that. And then they're able to sort of generate outputs, um, whether it's an Adobe Express page or, or mm -hmm. more simplified document, depending on who the audience is for for that deliverable. Right. But well, it all is housed. Well, we have both. We have yeah. the big, messy thing. And do you But by the end of the semester, they have to clean it up. Mm. And some of them clean up the big, messy thing. Some of them create a new board to turn in. Okay. Right, because the messy things are, are hard to follow unless you were following them every week. But that goes for many <laughs> of those things. Uh, knowledge evaporates. So while you're working in a messy circumstance, while you're active there, that's your home. So that will be with you. Um, and the report has the advantage that you force yourself to make a selection of these are the important things. And that might actually be your saving if you have to go back to the messy thing again. Yeah, yeah. There, there's not a descriptive story in the mess that's just capturing these insights or ideas or trying to make connections between things that seem unrelated. Well, unless you were there. Yeah. If you absolutely. were there, it makes total sense, but not just snooping in. It, it's not a presented story. No. Yeah, but, but it, but it makes total sense. Uh, yeah. Not, not always, because uh, I th one, of, one of the things I find so amazing of, uh, of constructive work is that you have to make tons of decisions all the time and you, you have options even if you just have a kid building a tower it's do i start uh, vertical do i start horizontal and in the end there is a structure um, 
But all the considerations of do I start horizontal, do I start vertical, make a, do I make a, a curve or something, in the end there's only the end. And during the work, there are all these things which later become loose leaves, which, which you can't really <laughs> recognize anymore. Look at your old sketches of a year ago. 80% is probably no longer um, conjuring up all the considerations that you did there. And I think that's, that's a really intriguing thing about knowledge generated in design. Um, sometimes you hear people say, yeah, I'm gonna deconstruct the current product and then something that was designed 50 years ago. And then we can discover what the considerations of design were for those people. It's very difficult to put yourself in the position of someone who was designing 50 years ago. All the materials were different, all the tools were different, everything was different. And you only have this product as the outcome. And it doesn't show the alternative options that were rejected. And for the people who did that work, the, they all knew the alternative options that they rejected, maybe time and again, until that time when they needed them. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the interesting things of design is that the, the product, the outcome, carries a lot of knowledge, but you have to point out what knowledge that is. Um, but also the people who, who made it learn so much. That reminds me of one of, one of the nicest stories. I think it's in Atul Gawande's book, Better. That's a medical surgeon writing about uh, healthcare and how it can be improved. And there was this um, team. I never knew whether it was designers, actually. But there was this team that was uh, taking on the problem of hand washing. Uh, for sanitation and that's a big problem because everybody isn't disciplined enough and and, and the surgeons and the, the cleaners and the nurses etc and what they did is they made focus groups groups of people with different people with nurses and doctors etc um, and they said we're not going to give you a solution we're going to let you talk about the solution. And then these people talked about the solution, and they wrote down the ideas. And it says in the book that after, after 20 sessions, they didn't learn anything new, but they continued to 48 sessions because they found out that the participants who were at the sessions, like the nurses, would the next day call the janitor to hang the soap dispenser at another place. So the people who participated in such a co-creation session suddenly realized that they could be an actor of change, that they were respected not only as an informant. And so this was one of those effects that you think, I used to think of, of co-design, yes, yeah, just a way of design, informing, and then we do it better. But you're changing the people who are take part in that. They all change. By inviting them in, you're, you're sort of giving them permission yeah. to be a decision maker. Um, and that certainly can extend beyond sort of the, the session itself. I think in, the ideal is empowerment, yeah. mm -hmm. that you go away and they're continued to be empowered to invent new 
solutions or whatever. But the intangible aspects, I think, of co-design are just now beginning to be talked about more. Mm-hmm. Whereas, yeah, originally, especially in my history, it was more about innovation for clients with, you know, big budgets. Um, but now, especially in healthcare, it's more about empowerment. How, how do you see those sort of ways continuing to be talked about or, or what sort of your sense with that? What do you mean, the difference between the commercial side and... Well, you, you said sort of like the sort of secondary, that empowerment is only now being able, starting to be talked about as a sort of outcome. Yeah, but in fields or disciplines such as healthcare mm. and social good um, and public policy, in the commercial world where they're using it mainly for innovation, um, I, I don't think it's um, addressed in that way, that we're not necessarily empowering consumers because even the word consumer is denigrating their role in the whole aspect of things so I just I see it in some um, domains also in like land use planning with environmental scientists Um, it's all about communities of practice and empowering the people to use their land once we're once we've co-designed decision tools with them um, we want to make sure that it continues. So the empowerment, it's not being talked about across the board from what I can see. Mm-hmm. I, I can see it being extremely impactful for the participants when that happens uh, of sort of having that new realization uh, of their role and, and what they can do. But I could also see it being frustrating for some when they feel like their ideas are bigger than their role or they're not able to they, they've envisioned this beautiful future in a co-creation session and they've built something that they ju- they, they're fleshing this out in their ideas and, and then they go back to their office and they don't see that same change happen. Their idea never gets realized yeah. in, in the way that the individual. The, the management of expectations is really, really tricky because if you are going to go away at the end of the grant or whatever, there's, you, know, you risk that happening. So it's a real challenge. So that's, I think, the focus on communities of practice to look not just at the solution or the policies or the decision-making tools, but to look at the formation of communities. Can you define that term, communities of practice? Um, I'm not going to – no, because I would want to define it the way the authors have defined it, and that's mm. not at the tip of my tongue. Okay. But but it's, it's basically a collaborative group of people working towards some common goal. And I think for the, for the hand-washing um, experience, I think it's also a shift of the mindset. I, probably the reason why these nurses were making these changes in their environment had to do with the way the session was set up and that there were other people from other roles and this had the blessing of the organization. Uh, and that's a different way of looking at co-design than just as informing good solutions. Uh, so if you had this, done this with individual sessions, even if they had brought up the same ideas, disempowerment would not have come from it. But I would yeah. just want to add a, oh, yeah. add a story. So I worked yeah. in, in, with an architecture firm for five years. Most of the work was in designing new hospitals or hospital systems. And what we observed then, if we were able to maintain 
an iterative co-design development process with primarily with the nurses. What would happen then is as the new buildings were being built, the nurses played, they, they got empowered and they played such a positive role in the phase that's called the transition planning. So typically in the built environment, like with hospitals, there, the design happens and then another firm specializing in transition planning comes in to train everybody in the hospital on how to work in the new hospital. Because the new hospital is going to be different, it's going to have all new equipment. So basically what happened is the need for transition planning was hugely reduced because the nurses started Since they were sharing, already a part of it. it. They were part of the solution and they took on, I don't know that they took on the entire role, but they were very, very active um, in what they used to you know, hire out to other firms. Because yeah, they owned I, it. I, I could even see that being just sort of that informal sharing in the hallway. Yeah. Uh, of of sharing this this cool idea or this way that we're, it will be better when type, type of sharing that sort of builds that sort of excitement and generates that. Right. But, but then management of expectations was always hovering because the architects would say, oh, we can't do that. Great idea, but <laughs> it's illegal or it's not in the code or whatever. That sort of starts to point a lot of the the focus on that leadership within the organization of being comfortable and being themselves a participant in this process or being willing to engage and, and have that same level of openness. How do you see that playing out in real time now? Are organizations moving towards that and, and leadership leaning into this, or is there still resistance, or is it just sort of a mixed field of? I think it's different in different parts of the world. Mm. I think it's slowest here, and well, the U.S. is very slow. And Europe, New Zealand, um, and Australia, I would say Europe's been the long, you know what I mean, the longest player. New Zealand and Australia are the quickest learners. Mm. But I think the U.S. is way behind, although with healthcare, it's now a big thing. It's been prioritized? Um, yeah, part, part of it is in healthcare, they rely a lot on sort of patient, um, the press gainy, you know, the, the patient satisfaction mm -hmm. surveys. Yes. So they're very concerned with the patient experience. And so that's starting to drive more focus on um, the role of the patient as the expert of the lived experience in healthcare but it's fairly recent. Broader than healthcare, why do you see the United States being slow to shift towards this? Um, I think it's the mindset that, um, say, CEOs of companies, you know, I made it this far, I'm great, I'm the expert, why should I listen to the people? Wanting to be the, dis the decision maker? Yeah, or, or not acknowledging that other forms of expertise matter. And there's, there's another dynamic to that, and that is the within-company dynamic. Um, I know, I don't do these things myself, but I know from people who uh, try to make those changes as consultants uh, with, with uh, companies. And then the top management can see this as a really bright idea. But for the middle management, it can be very threatening. And then what often happens that the top management says, yeah, do a project on this. And then things happen. And then the middle managers are told to um, comply. But by the way, you have to get your targets. And 
change is never as efficient as optimizing the present and that's what these people were paid for and that was these people were trained at and that's what these people were attending to so that can make it uh, difficult for large companies and you often see that small medium enterprises are much quicker to because they don't have as many levels so there's less of that metal the boss the boss knows how it is to be at the floor Mm. and Often also, we th- the first studies we did uh, was with large companies because they had budget and research departments. And then um, Christine Lille wanted to bring this to uh, small and medium enterprises. And we thought, okay, that should be doing it sloppy <laughs> and cheap. Uh, and no, you had to do it totally different because in a small company, typically uh, the CEO had experience on the work floor and knows the product and can take a decision uh, to start prototyping the next day. And in a big company, well, you have to wait two quarters for all the decision chains to come. Um, So at different places, it's a different dynamic. Well, one of the things I'm thinking about while you're explaining that is in those smaller companies, the, the CEO or the leader, if they were once at the bottom, they have an expertise in that, right? And we're talking about people are an expert in what they do. So so having that insight into the day-to-day operation of, of whatever the sort of is peculiar about that industry allows them to respond more quickly or, or with better understanding and have that motivation. Do you agree yeah, with that? Yeah, it's not my particular area of expertise, yeah. but yeah, I, I, I would agree there. there the, 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 the CEO wouldn't call himself CEO. Yeah. <laughs> He's the boss. Uh, but he has, he has been with the clients. Yes. And he, he knows at least some of the problems that the clients have. So no, And of course, in very big companies, there are people who know the clients only as entries in a spreadsheet. That makes it very difficult to empathize. With more designers being trained in design research and are now going out into these different industries, where do you see the biggest shift happening? We talked a little bit about healthcare and some countries that are more active um, participants in design research. But looking ahead towards five, 10, 15 years, where, where do you see the, the effect of this knowledge being distributed and disseminated to all these different areas? Well, I'll say right now there's a huge amount of interest from financial um, organizations, so, so banks, insurance companies, but big companies who have a service, hmm. and it's all being delivered online. So there's a lot of uh, design researchers um, being snatched up to to work there. So they're dealing with um, experience, high levels of complexity, um, and so forth. Um, and that's great, but that's, it, you know, I'd like to see it move beyond, I think here in the U.S., it's more the big systems, the big, the hospitals, the, the Chase and the Huntingtons that have the funds to bring people in. I would hope that it would um, spread to smaller and smaller organizations um, and nonprofit organizations and so forth. That's not really happening to a great extent yet in the U.S. In Europe, I think it happens more, especially in Scandinavia. 
also where where public services have been adopting design the uk has also mm -hmm. had design in government uh, for a while so that's good news also it can be done um, and i think if you if you really want to look 10 years ahead um, and if ai doesn't kill us all um, then i think with all the transdisciplinary movement and design being adopted in many places and often superficial but i think that will also mature that you get more um, i'm very intrigued by the experiences we have in bringing design exercises in primary education small kids and it's not strange for small kids to make things according to a brief and explore a solution space and come up with criteria and stuff themselves so there are these these elements which uh, we tend to lose and not that it, anyone can naively do everything from there but there is a much broader uh, there's a much broader uh, set of people who can use them and one of the interesting things I've had at the university for the past four years is that I get questions from people in social sciences who have heard about these things from design and they're trying it out even though they don't know how to sell it back home. Uh, but it's it's spreading. Interesting. So yeah. Wait, so I want to add, if we're talking yeah. 10 years from now, I think that we'll <coughs> have harnessed um, virtual reality and artificial intelligence so that we can create future online, you know, future virtual um, experiences, scenarios, and landscapes so that we can actually play in the future and test things out virtually um, and understand the problems before we make things real. Mm. So, so I see so it as an anticipatory too. ground, and design researchers will be key because we, we, we don't want the, the so-called tech experts playing these future worlds. We want normal people. And Correct. the designers can help create these environments of exploration. Especially as the solutions become larger in scale. Yes. To more of the systematic yeah. level. Or, or so you're acting out so in environments with other people virtually. So, you know, there's not the danger. I chuckled a little bit because I, I in class, especially with the undergraduates, I tell them all of these things are very familiar to you because this was part of your childhood. And so we're returning to that in a lot of ways, not, not just in the sense of play, but in creativity and, and just that sort of natural exploration. And I think in work, when, when we're talking with that sort of heading of, of work, people are very resistant to that or it's uncomfortable. In doing so, and sort of as you're talking about this moving into these other areas, do you see opportunities to where this can start to shift that culture so work doesn't feel like work and, and there is that sort of sense of permission or, or purposeful play, right, with, within that, the activity itself of the 9 to 5 or 8 to 5? Yeah, I think, I think the play dimension requires an empowerment dimension. Um, you cannot um, be playful if that has to happen between uh, 9 a.m. and 9.15 and then go back <laughs> back to the grindstone. Uh, so, but we've 
seen some changes in the nature of work with COVID, and suddenly it was possible to do a different balance of working from home and working in the office and those types of things. Um, so yeah, there is room to put more play into work, but it requires putting more autonomy or trust or uh, ability uh, and, and in people. I, I, I see in interior space design playful environments, but they seem focused on the um, artifacts, the, the furniture, the chairs, and so forth. But if you don't have a culture mm-hmm. to be playful in those spaces, it's not really going to work. So you c- it could look very playful, but not itself. feel playful if you don't have the culture to support or that way of creativity working. Or foster play exactly so i see the you know i see an attempt but it's not full it's mm-hmm. not whole it's not hasn't been fully realized as to what the potential of no the spaces could be and and the university here itself is starting to think about those questions and starting to think that maybe students should be involved as experts of the lived experience finally that, that would be nice that. <laughs> There's actually a, another side to when we talk about play, we should really distinguish plays, play from gamification. Yes, that has become very big and in very nasty formats. <laughs> can you can you expand <laughs> on that? Well, I, uh, we have a wonderful <laughs> HR support system, which is when you are a manager, you have to have these talks with people, and then the software is utterly. Bad is probably a nice word that you don't have to beep out. Um, and it's very difficult to put things in. The interface is, has all the mistakes of putting 72 buttons in your face, of which you only have to use two, and those are the two that are hidden. Um, and then th- now they ad- are adopting that you get this circles of completion just as you get with your step counter on your iphone etc but you get it they put it in your work and so you're confronted with a badly working system which is not serving your needs and you get this denigrating yay you've made another 30 degree turn to complete the pie chart (laughs) and yeah that's what can really piss people off yeah well i think it it connects directly with what Liz was saying is there there's the they're going in the right direction but it sort of stops at the aesthetic quality versus it being well there's a, there's an aesthetic quality and there's a the, big manipulative quality yes. which is not so empowering at all yes yeah absolutely there there's a risk with a lot of these design decisions the decisions fall to the the correct way versus or being coercive or yeah. manipulative in some of <coughs> And then you decisions. get back, and, but, but I, I think the, the, the recent or recent uh, attention for nudging, that's, that's really interesting. So if you have people fill in a form, then you pre-select the one that is desirable, and it had big changes on how people vote, let's say, for uh, certain issues. But who is determining which one do we pre-select? Who's determining what is the desirable option? On the other hand, if you have a lot of decisions to make, if you let people churn their way through everything, they might be brain dead by the end they uh, got to the end. Decision so, fatigue. Yeah. 
that, that, that's a fatigue. So it's, it's a really difficult problem. How to balance, how much to pre-structure, which options to give, and it's typically a place where co-creation is needed. Otherwise, you're imposing things in a s sneaky way. But being able to have that sense of participation sort of helps create the, the balance between the two ends of the scale. So that way you're, you're, you're able to find that right calibration. If there is one. Yes. <laughs> this is interesting. I feel like we could talk for another hour, but we should probably start to wrap this up. One question for each of you. Uh, same question. People are listening and, and either getting a, a, a sense of like, oh, I wish my place could do this or my work environment or my school environment. And, and they have a lean towards this conversation. What's one step that people can take today to start thinking through design? I think the role of designers will be to create the tools, the spaces, and the environments to facilitate the creativity of others. So I don't think that I want to put it on the people to mm -hmm. be more creative. I want to provoke the designers to have the goal to create things to make others creative and to um, help them do that in a collective way. So designers making the tools for others to use to be collectively creative is what I think, you know what I mean? So That's designers shift from strategic. making the solutions to making spaces the, the for situation others. for Spaces for others, for mm -hmm. the experts of the lived experience to be motivated to participate, to know how to participate, to feel comfortable participating, and to continue participating. That, that's like a long-term goal. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. I think an, an important question there is where can people take initiative? Uh, so on the one hand, uh, you, do, you shouldn't say, well, we have designers do design to people. Uh, we can't say people, uh, why don't you just become designers? Uh, so there, where the agency lies and some of it lies with designers to make the tools available, and some of it lies with people in organizational capacities to encourage and uh, well make it available within their organization. Uh, and, um, and some of it lies in uh, those wonderful um, individuals who pick up on things and have an activistic uh, tendency. Yeah, and, and I think what's interesting about both of those answers is changing or or sort of I guess we're blending the the term designer to be both capital D designer and lowercase d designer um, to be more inclusive and to have that sense of empowerment that you don't have to be a capital D designer to be a designer a lowercase d a lowercase yeah. d mm -hmm. designer yeah, yeah. And that resonates with Simon. Simon's definition of design, everybody who plans or makes an improvement to the world is doing design. Yes. And so I think we should be um, quite clear in, in saying what is it that a professional can bring and what is it that 
everyone can do. Uh, there's really a spectrum. Well, thank you both for being here today. Um, and I also want to thank you, our listeners. Um, I appreciate your attention. I hope this episode has provided you with something to consider. I am Adam Fromey, your host, and this has been Thinking Through Design. Thinking Through Design is produced by Adam Fromey and recorded in sunny Columbus, Ohio at the College of Arts and Sciences Digital Media Studio in Haggerty Hall on the campus of The Ohio State University. Music is Relax Part One by the eminent Paul Nini. I'm Ava Dale.